Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I am Andrea Schwartz, and I am joined by my co-host, Reverend Charles Roberts, and today we're going to tackle the question, why have evangelical Christians changed their views on human sexuality? Charles, what's the real question behind that question? Well, back of that question is the issue of whether or not God's infallible and inerrant word is changeable or adaptable. Is it malleable based on the times? Is it like a wax nose that needs to be shaped and molded depending on whatever the uh, direction the cultural winds are blowing at any given time. And on this particular issue of human sexuality, unfortunately, those cultural winds have blown ill in the evangelical world. And the issue, especially regarding same-sex marriage, homosexuality, these issues, of course, have been front-burner issues for some years. However, it's only been in recent years that evangelical churches and leading spokesmen for things like the so-called emerging or emergent church movement and things such as that have started making noise that is not indistinguishable at all from the standard liberal cultural line of our, of our own society. And most notable example of that is a conference that's coming up and it's received quite a lot of publicity and controversial publicity at that, a conference upcoming in St. Louis called Revoice. And it is a conference where gay, lesbian, and transgendered people who consider themselves Christians are getting together with leading spokespeople from that group. And what's notable about this is the host of this conference is a congregational church in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which is, I think, the largest conservative, traditional Presbyterian denomination. I mean, the PCA was formed, for any of our listeners who don't know, out of what used to be the old Southern Presbyterian Church, who were very, very concerned about, guess what, uh, the rising liberalism in that denomination, and then what would eventually become the PCUSA. And issues relating to things like this very topic, although back in the early 70s, this was not the main topic. It was certainly one in the background, but of course, it has come to the forefront to the point now where a congregation or uh, the leaders of a particular congregation are hosting this event. The key thing to point out here, and I think this would be a good point for us to start off as far as hitting the issue, and that is, is it possible for someone to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and have an orientation or a predisposition or an inclination, choose your term, to be homosexual, to be gay or lesbian, without acting and engaging in the activity, but having that orientation, being attracted to a person of the same sex, but since they don't act on it, nevertheless consider themselves a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Well, let me just throw in here, temptation is not the same thing as sin. Giving into temptation is obviously a sin, and the reason I can make the first statement is that the Bible records in the Gospels Jesus being tempted by the devil. If being tempted was a sin, then Jesus would never have qualified to be our substitute because he himself would have sinned. Furthermore, the scripture tells us that we will never be tempted beyond what God's grace will supply for us not to fall into the temptation. So going back to the garden It wasn't that Adam and Eve were tempted that is the cause of the fall, is that they gave into the temptation. So you may have someone who has a propensity to like stuff other people have and thinks about whether or not he can have it. Now, we would say that's sin in terms of sin of thought, and he has to deal with God on that. But if he never carries out the action of the sin, then mankind, the civil realm, the church realm, has no authority to go in and sort of 
earth his thinking and try to do anything other than inform his thinking that theft is contrary to God's law. That's a very important point and a very important distinction. And right along with that, let's also put on the table that we recognize that Holy Scripture and God's law uh, condemn various types of sinful activities, theft, adultery, murder, all the things listed in the summary of the laws given in the Ten Commandments. But the, you know, the, the question becomes, though, what does God's Word and God's law have to say about entertaining temptation, dwelling on, the, say, the lust for somebody else's possessions, or in the case that we're talking about, lust for another person sexually? That's not acting on it, but Scripture is very clear that that type of activity, that type of mental, emotional investment in imagining and being fascinated by all the terms that would go into, quote, lusting for something, that it is sinful. Now, of course, it's different than, as you just pointed out, than the actual committing of the act, but it, it, it doesn't let a person off the hook. In other words, you, well, I'm okay lusting after this other person's wife as long as I don't act on it. No, that's not what Jesus taught, and that's not what the law can, uh, has to say, as if it's okay. People with a statist orientation, which I say that's probably most of us, because being those who were born in the 20th century or in the 21st century, don't really know of a time where we didn't have an overarching state. So people always think of the state or we're going to do something about someone else's transgression or sin, however that's described or defined. But there are many things in Scripture that are identified as sin that God doesn't give the prerogative to man to deal with. And so it doesn't make it any less sin, and I think this is what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. Jesus was clarifying what I said as God authoritatively in the Old Testament still applies, but I just want to make sure you all know that, yeah, it's good if you don't commit adultery physically, but if you lust after a woman in your heart, then you're still sinning. But I don't give other men the authority to deal with that. Now you're dealing just with me on that. And I think that's the difference. We don't have to say something is right because we like it as opposed to we don't like it. If, if that's the way we do things, then it's like a pick and choose. But that's not how God identifies the authority of his word. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't say, you can love me even if you don't keep my commandments. And uh, the commandments, as you just pointed out, involve both the physical activity and the mental activity. And uh, the fact is, we do punish people, either in the church or the family or the state, for committing certain physical activities that are sinful or criminal. But I don't know of anyone who would reasonably argue that physical activity can somehow take place without there first being mental intention or mental activity and investment. Human beings simply don't commit actions, whether it be picking up a pencil off the floor or robbing a bank without first thinking it through. <laughs> you know, It may be a very quick thought. It may be instinctive, but it's there. And along the same line, and I think this is where we, we can move further into the point of uh, the, the changing views on human sexuality, and that is the, the idea that God has so constituted human beings that we are to glorify him. That is the, the mandate that we were given through Adam and Eve at creation. And, and let's, let's also, while I'm saying this, fully admit we are talking about a biblical worldview here. If someone has thrown, thrown away the biblical worldview or if they have no interest in being invested in it, of course they're going to come up with a different paradigm, a different, a different foundation. That we're talking about Christians. This is specifically about evangelical churches, evangelical church leaders who have moved on this issue. So we have to deal with what Holy Scripture teaches us as our foundation. And so, at a, at a minimum, people who don't want to hold to the orthodox view on these things ought to be honest enough to say, "Well, you know, we're stepping away from this." It's like the uh, the old story of the elderly couple who were riding down the street and the husband's pickup truck, and they saw this young couple who were, you know, uh, scooted up next to each other in the front seat of the car, and 
the, the girlfriend was right next to the boyfriend as he was driving. And, you know, of course the older couple, the, the, the woman was sitting next to the window and he was driving the car and she looked over at him and she said, why don't we sit next to each other like that anymore? And he said, well, I didn't move, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Scripture has taught this and the church has always believed and had this view insofar as it has been faithful to God's word and his law, that this type of activity, in other words, these deviations or defections from God's standards of human sexuality are sinful. And as the Westminster Shorter Catechism that I adhere to says, some sins in themselves are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And so, yes, as I said at the beginning, we do recognize that there are a whole raft of activities and things that God considers sinful and unacceptable. But the fact is, uh, there is indeed in God's sight, and in terms of God's law, a difference if you steal a man's cow versus if you slaughter a hundred people wantonly for no other reason that you want to take their property. Right. Uh, so it has to do with the view of the law. If you believe that God's law is no longer operative... There's a word for that. We would say you are antinomian. But we'd be foolish to think that you don't believe in any law because there's going to be some law that governs. And at this point, I'd like to share an extensive quote from one of Dr. R.J. Rushduni's books, which is the third volume in his Institutes of Biblical Law. The book is subtitled The Intent of the Law. And what he did in this volume is different from the first two, is he grouped all the laws having to do with specific subjects together. And so if you want to know, for example, how to make restitution or when restitution is appropriate or how much restitution, he's got sections that deal just with that. So you have one place to go and he'll provide the references. Well, there's one chapter partway through the book that's entitled, The Law as Death. And that's what I'd like to quote. He says this, For the godly, God's law is liberty. It protects man from the lawless actions of thieves and murderers, for example. If, however, a man be a criminal, the law is at the least a restriction on his freedom, and it is potentially his death. What we think of God's law tells us what we are. For example, Leviticus 20 requires death for adultery, the death of both the adulterer and the adulteress. It also requires death for homosexual acts. Over the years, many have demanded, do you still believe in that? Well, God said it, and I accept it, as his requirement of a good society. All too many people, unbelievers and churchmen alike, seethe with hostility against God for so ruling and against me for so believing in God's law. Why? Do they want these and like sins to be an option for them, if they so choose? Do they want all immoral and moral lifestyles to be equally valid? Or do they only want God as a spectator and inspirer, but never as lawmaker and judge? Law is liberty to the godly. It protects them from evildoers, from criminals. Their lives and possessions are secure where God's law is honored, jeopardized where God's law is despised. For the ungodly, God's law is a sentence of death in time and in eternity. Separation from God and from his law, which is the expression of his nature, is death. All through scripture, God's nature is described as altogether righteous, meaning altogether justice. The law of God sets forth his justice or righteousness. It's only natural for the ungodly to hate God's law. Whatever their profession, they see God's law as a death sentence against them. How we think of God's law tells us how we think of God. If we go through the Bible to eliminate or reinterpret those aspects of God displeasing to us, we have eliminated the living God to create a false God, an idol, out of some of God's words and attributes. Idolatry does not necessarily require materials to create a false image. We can create idols with our ideas or with selected texts from the Bible. For us, the law of God can be liberty or it can be death. And that's the end of the quote. 
And I think that perspective is a good way to view the current trends that say maybe we've moved beyond some of these Old Testament sins. Yes, this has been a persistent problem in Protestant evangelical churches for some decades now, where there has been an increasing emphasis on so-called personal piety and the interior experience of salvation versus the objective and visible obedience to what God commands us to do as a result of our having a living relationship to him. And if you divorce the law from that relationship, uh, then the, the door is open for all manner of things to take place, such as we are seeing. This example was being used for something a little bit different, but it would be, uh, I think it's germane here, if your priority is God's law, then the nature and the consistency and quality of your relationships can be very effectively managed and handled because you're following the infallible truth of God, the absolute truth of God, as that is your priority. If, however, the priority is the relationship, however you choose to define it, the feeling, the emotion, then the truth, the the law is simply thrown aside or minimized to the point where it's however you're feeling or whichever way the relationship goes in terms of either sex or emotion or whatever else it may be, there's no boundary. And what God teaches us in his word, and I think that part of what Dr. Rustuni was getting at in that very fine quote that you shared with us is the the passage that he loved to quote so often from Proverbs chapter 8, speaking of God's wisdom, all they that hate me are in love with death. And it is no coincidence then that we see our culture awash in the view that human sexuality can be whatever we define it to be, and certainly in no way, shape, or form should it be defined according to what God's word says. We have that but we have the corresponding rise with an infatuation, with death, with evil, with things that just tend toward the the extinction of humanity. Look at how many TV shows and movies are about zombies and uh, apocalyptic dystopian end to all things. It is no coincidence that that has come about at the same time we find these downgrades from the biblical standards concerning human sexuality. And you have a current uproar over men behaving badly and taking advantage of women. And the women who are outspoken about this never hold a standard that says that sexuality is governed by a a transcendent law. That means that just because I want to and somebody else wants to, then it makes it correct, as opposed to I wanted to, but someone else didn't want to. Because, you see, then the source of authority is the individual. Except it never can be because you how many individuals you have, if we're all operating on our own law, we'll be lucky if anybody would be left. It reminds me of, of a significant contrast between philosophers who have embraced and promoted atheism. And I recall I went through a phase like this when I was in college and university, where I got infatuated with the British atheist and philosopher Bertrand Russell. Now, he was an example of a philosopher who promoted, well, in his case, he claimed it was agnosticism, but nevertheless, he was very much active for promoting various, what he considered to be moral causes, most of them contrary to the Bible, but he was very much against the use of nuclear weapons. He was an early activist for nuclear disarmament for everyone. But the interesting thing was, another prominent atheist, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, he was one of the ones that pointed out, look, if you're going to throw the Judeo-Christian God out of the picture, you can't in any way, shape, or form maintain a morality that's in any way associated with that God. You've got to start over, whatever you choose to be. And and I think what you just mentioned, uh, this current uproar over the way in particular certain prominent and well-to-do noteworthy men have treated women, as if that's something new, and the uproar about, well, what's the standard by which these things are to be objected to? Because in many cases, the women who, I'm not saying they don't have a reason to object, from my standpoint at least, they certainly do, but I'm not so sure that they have an ethical or moral groundwork to ultimately say, 
you should not be doing this. Well, on what basis can we say that this person should not do it? Well, as Sartre pointed out, if you have rejected the Bible and the God of the Bible, then you can't simply pick and choose little aspects of a morality that's been built on God's law. Now, he didn't put it that way, but that's exactly what he's implying. And I think for too long, people who have wanted to appear suave and avant-garde by rejecting God have thought that they could somehow be moral in some meaningful sense without having a, a biblical moral frame, or while wanting to maintain a biblical moral framework, they just don't want the God that put it there. And so when you have individuals who are professing faith but have a syncretistic faith that also incorporates the worldview of the culture around them. So they have a little bit of Bible and they have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And plus they have their own personal orientation, which says the way I see the world is the way it should be. You bring that now to church leadership and saying, how are we going to get more people in here to hear the gospel? I know. Let's be more like the culture, let's not present Christianity as a bunch of thou shalt nots, although only two out of the Ten Commandments don't have a quote-unquote negative orientation in terms of what you shouldn't do. Let's talk about how much better their life will be if they come in and join us. Therefore, everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and we can all get along. Except the Bible doesn't say that. And then we've further adulterated the message and said, we can hate the sin, but we can love the sinner. As though sin existed as an entity. When I used to communicate this to my children as I was teaching them in our homeschool, I said, look out the window and you tell me when you see sin walking or driving down the street. I want to know when you see it. Yes. And point it out to me. Well, of course, they laughed and said, you're not going to see sin. You don't ever see the sin of adultery or the sin of theft just there. It's always attached to a person. So really, there's no such logical way to hate the sin but love the sinner because God doesn't make that differentiation. He puts them both together. So if we really want to even love our enemies – and let's take a look at those who our enemies should be, would be those who oppose the God of creation, the God of the Bible, the true God, then we must be truthful with them, not try to lure them in with the candy of we're just like each other. There's no difference between us. And being truthful with them means that we not only talk about the nature of what it means to be man and woman, and the institution of biblical marriage as established at creation in the creation of human beings, but also God's law as it is stipulated both in the summary of the law and the Ten Commandments. But in this particular issue, as articulated so very poignantly by Paul in that first chapter of Romans, addressing the issue of the idolatry of the Gentiles, the pagans, and this is where he has this very extensive statement about the, these people because they don't worship the true God, even though they know the true God, being created in God's image, they are constituted so that the very fact that they are created in God's image is constantly un, in their consciousness, and so they're constantly suppressing that knowledge and, and creating kind of a cognitive dissonance, so they, they don't want to admit in any way, shape, or form that they are accountable to God. So this leads them, and he goes into this interesting list of idolatrous practices, worshiping birds and creeping things. But then he gets into the issue of human sexuality. And what's no, most notable about this, in addition to the fact that he clearly condemns homosexual activity, th this current debate that is the premise for the, the conference that I mentioned at the beginning, and this has been the subject of critical comment uh, in several podcasts that I've seen lately as well, the issue of orientation or disposition as if you are constituted a certain way, you're, you're bent in a certain direction, but as long as you don't act on it, then it's okay. God still loves you anyway. That type of thinking is completely set aside by Paul. In Romans 1, he, he uses terms, especially I think it's in verses 25, 26, and 27, he uses the terms burning with lust, passion. So he's talking about disposition. He's talking about the orientation toward 
homosexual, same-sex relationships. And he's, he's saying the action is bad, and so is the orientation. And let me just say one other thing about this. It certainly is sinful if a heterosexual person lusts in his or her heart for someone other than his or her spouse to whom they are legally married. But it is not heterosexuality that is condemned in Scripture. It's the lust in this case, not the heterosexuality. But that is not the case with homosexuality, because both the lust and the orientation, the disposition, are considered sinful. And this is where, if you do not have an orthodox understanding of what it means to be in the body of Christ, see, we have cheapened it. We've cheapened it in a way that nobody would ever accept in secular terms. For example, I live in an area that has a number of country clubs. I can't walk in and said, I accept this country club as my country club. <laughs> they would say, um, you don't belong here. And I'd say, but I'd like to belong here. And then they would tell me what the requirements would be to belong there. I might have to pay a certain amount of money. I may have to live within a certain geographical location. And there could be any number of other things. Even if I don't like their requirements, if it's their requirements, it's their requirements. That's not how it is with Christianity. You say you're a Christian, and you're a Christian. Does it matter what you believe? Does it matter whether or not you hold to the basic tenets of the faith? Not at all. Currently, if you accept Jesus into your heart, whatever that means, and how much you knew before you did that, I mean, it is not uncommon for churches to feel really good about someone who shows up, hears one message, comes forward, and then tells them, you're a Christian now. Really? Do they have any idea? Well, how many people will go in and say, I belong to this country club now. I just decided I did, and someone said I could. So we've thrown out the idea that there are distinctives of being a Christian as opposed to being a Buddhist or being a Hindu or being a Muslim or being a humanist or being a pantheist, whatever you want to say. There are differences in orientation, but if we throw those out, then we have to get lax on the things that God's word says are bad if we want to get people to come in because we're really saying that the major religion is relativistic and humanistic and we're the measure of right and wrong. And it is only because of a steady rejection and discomfort with God's law that especially evangelical churches in the West and especially these United States where that type of approach can develop or has developed, and the idea that you mentioned before, that this notion of hating the sin but loving the sinner, only someone with a theological understanding that rejects God's law could come up with something like that. Only someone who does not really understand the nature of sin, the nature of biblical faith and biblical religion. And what we find is that this is exactly you know what has happened over the span of several hundred years, where there was a very profound and deeply dedicated Calvinistic orthodoxy among most Protestants uh, in these United States. But with the rise of the so-called First Great Awakening and the teachings of Charles Finney, who basically was promoting a type of Arminianism that denied that God was totally sovereign over all of his creation, that I could choose for myself whether or not I would be a Christian or I would become saved. It was completely my my vote. You know, the, the devil votes against me. God votes for me. I cast a deciding vote. That's kind of that, that mentality. That, and that may sound good to people, but it leaves off the question of, well, who is really sovereign in that case? And again, the same thing applies in the issue concerning hum, human sexuality. Who has the right? Who has the authority to define what is good and proper and acceptable sexual practice and activity in a culture or a society. And as you said earlier, it's not a question of, uh, you know, rejecting a law in particular, because law is inevitable. You will inevitably obey a legal standard. The question is, whose is it going to be? And is it one that promotes truth and life or one that promotes death? And interestingly enough, it is the antinomian mindset that basically 
cripples Christians in terms of having a way in which to respond to the sexual deviations of our day. Because now it is viewed that if you reject a man who says he's a woman, that's far worse than if you fornicate. Yet the Bible talks about fornication as being something that will prevent someone from entering the kingdom of heaven if they don't repent of it. But it never says if a man is deluded into thinking he's a woman and you don't go along with it, God is going to reject you. So when people say, well, you're, if you're a good Christian, you're not supposed to judge. You're supposed to love everybody. Aren't you supposed to love people unconditionally? I mean, Jesus loves everybody unconditionally. And you have people defending those statements, none of which are orthodox or biblical. Well, and that raises a very interesting point concerning how we are to interact with people who have unfortunately been blinded or bought into this type of thinking. I recall when I was a younger person, when I was in my early teens, it was the habit of some people in the high school where I went to school to, these were a group of boys, to pile themselves in a car on a weekend and cruise around a part of town where homosexuals were known to hang out and pick up one of these poor hapless individuals on the uh, from their standpoint, this is going to be a sexual encounter only to take the fellow off and, and beat the daylights out of him. And then I would hear people bragging. I would hear these individuals bragging, oh, you know, well, we picked up this guy and, you know, we beat him up and this sort of thing. Uh, as a sign of, of, of manhood, as a sign of being a tough and rejecting something so evil. Yes, uh, that type of uh, sexual activity is, is not acceptable, but neither is murder neither is the unlawful beating up of another person. So, uh, but look, the fact that homosexuals, adulterers have been mistreated or not been treated with compassion on some level, that doesn't somehow make the sin okay. It only means that we need to be honest and open and acceptable to people to discuss with them what their problems are. I mean, one of the issues that Jesus had to deal with with the Pharisees in his day is uh, that the very people who needed to hear the truth of God's law, who needed the, the light of God's word, they were not even allowed to hear it or see it. You know, they were cast aside. And it was Jesus, the divine son of God, speaking God's law, who would come alongside these people. And one of the most famous cases is the case of the woman caught in adultery. Yes, he said, you know, woman, is there no one who condemns you? Neither do I. But he didn't just stop there. <laughs> he said, Go and sin no more. That is a direct reference to mental and physical activity or refraining of, of, of certain type of activity with a larger reference to what God's law said. And God doesn't call for a police state. So are we really to believe that God expects good Bible-believing Christians to be going around with their binoculars, peeking into people's homes to finding out what it is they're doing. No. Those sins will be judged by God. So what does God call the people of God to do? Well, it's to not embrace that which is offensive to God. And in the case of homosexuality, the Bible calls it an abomination. So when we have parades, when we have a situation, I read yesterday that the current administration has chosen not to view June as LGBT Rights Month. Okay, well, I can look at that and say, that's good. Number one, I'm not sure the civil government has to recognize anything one way or the other. It should just stick to what it's supposed to do, defense and justice. But I'm not unhappy that it has chosen not to follow what the article called a long-standing tradition of presidents honoring the LGBT community. Well, first of all, you know what that long-standing tradition was? The last administration and its eight years. So <laughs> it, that was the long-standing tradition. So you know what one municipality decided to do? They were going to have cross-dressing story times for children at the local library. That's how they were going to combat the fact that the current administration decided not to honor the LGBT community. And of course, these people are flaunting their disregard for God's law. 
that's where society is injured when we embrace these people's delusions and sin. We have this erroneous idea that says, would you rather be people hiding this? Isn't it better for people to be open and honest? In this case, no. They have a much harder time repenting of their sin if they have this badge of honor that this is what it is that they do. When people hide their sin, it's still an acknowledgement that their consciences have not fully been seared. Think of the kid who takes the cookie from the cookie jar. He doesn't come in and go, hey, mom and dad, I just ate all the cookies. He knows something's wrong with it, so he will conceal it. Well, we don't want him to lie, but we also don't want him to take cookies from the cookie jar. So we teach the full-orbed faith, not just it's better that you tell the truth and we're going to excuse the prior sin. No. We want people to understand that their offense has much more in terms of dire consequences for them than it does for us. So for me not to look at Johnny and call him Jane because he wants to be called Jane, I'm sorry. If I know he's Johnny and I call him Jane, I'm not helping him. And I'm sinning against God because God made him Johnny. So then I have to say that God made the mistake. God makes no mistakes. In the quote that you shared with us earlier from Dr. Rush Dooney, uh, there were several references to the penal sanctions, the capital punishment for several violations of God's law, of which sodomy and homosexuality is one such thing. But as you pointed out, and in the, the, um, the real working of a, a, a biblically-based law society, uh, you don't have the people with the binoculars. You don't have this status coercive mentality. And as a matter of fact, I believe it was a discussion either um, Dr. Rustuni or Mark Rustuni uh, was having on this particular point that in actual practice, it would be very hard, you know, to bring the sanction to such a point because you had to have at least two witnesses to the activity. And, you know, I recall, uh, maybe you do as well, when I was much younger, there were laws, in, in at least the community where I grew up, that were called sodomy laws. And these came straight from the Bible. There, there were laws on the books prohibiting this type of activity. Now, of course, they've all been thrown out. But I don't ever recall large numbers of roundups of, of homosexuals or, or whatever, and all of them being beaten up and legally you know, hung from – that just didn't happen. But the law was there, and it was recognized that this activity was illegal. But the idea that people individually have to become snoops and statists and, and looking and observing every, whatever move a person makes, that is not at all what the, the law is saying, uh, because the whole premise of God's law is that we govern ourselves first and foremost. We are to be self-governing according to God's law. We can't do that without the renewing grace of God in our lives and the Holy Spirit. But the, the larger point is, is that in a godly society, in a society based on Holy Scripture, these sorts of things will be in place. There will be clear boundaries by which people can understand. And again, the example you used about the cookie jar, the pursuing of aberrant or perverted sexual activity, these types of things have gone on ever since there were human beings, ever since sin came into the human stream. Uh, I, I can't comment what happened 5,000 years ago, but I do know that in my memory, in my lifetime, there were parts of town where people who practiced such things, that's where they were known to go. And you had to go out of your way to find it. It was considered the bad part of town. And people who did that understood that I'm going to the bad side of town to engage in this type of activity. But as bad as they themselves may have thought that was in terms of uh, uh, categorizing themselves, there was no doubt where they stood. And in some ways, I don't know that they would have ever admitted it, but they were better off in understanding and knowing what the boundaries were for, for being, quote, bad or sinful, uh, according to the standards of the society, which were based on Scripture. So how do you go from the bad part of town to having a man who is confused that he's not a man and he's a woman and now you make him woman of the year in sports circles. And I won't say his name because I don't need to give him promotion. But the point is, how do you get from the bad part of town 
to now where it's accepted. And if you say anything against it, you're the one who's on the wrong side. Well, it's because the civil authorities back in your day growing up and in other parts of the country didn't take a stand and say God's law prohibits this. And so they didn't allow those parts of town to proceed that way. Rashduni makes the point that there's no civil penalty for transvestitism given in the Bible. That would be a woman dressing as a man or vice versa. He says the societal exclusion would be enough that someone wouldn't pursue it. That's not the situation we have today. We have a reversal. If you don't accept it, you could be subject to censoring or losing your job because you refuse to use a pronoun that's not appropriate to the situation. Well, and the, and the question that you asked, you know, how do we, how do we get from, or how do we go from the bad part of town to where the kinds of activities that took place on the bad part of town in the bad part of town are now front and center and being promoted and glorified? Well, that is a very important question. I mean, there are a number of ways to answer it. Obviously, the society and the culture have moved away from the standard of God's law to a different standard. The cultural mores, the cultural foundations have changed. Otherwise, we wouldn't be seeing what we are seeing. Regrettably, we have an entire generation of people who never knew anything about that, and insofar as they ever bother to see TV programs or articles or stories from, say, the 1940s or 50s, not that those were perfect times, but you certainly don't see the decline that we see today, and ask themselves, why does this particular TV show not have this type of theme to it? Well, because it was a different culture. How did that change? Well, I would like to suggest to our listeners that they consider one very significant explanation, and that was the influence of something called the Frankfurt School. I don't want to go too far down this path. It might be worth another discussion. But there were elements from Europe right after World War II who largely had embraced the teachings of Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx, among others, who came to this country, many of them as refugees from the Nazi era, specifically to the, promote these types of thinking that we are now seeing as standard behavior in our culture today. This was promoted by Herbert Marcuse, who I believe taught at Yale and uh, Berkeley. And part of the, the whole program of the Frankfurt School was to disseminate interest in perverted sexuality, liberal ideas as we can't come to know, politic political correctness as we come to know it today. And the, the whole goal specifically was to upend and do away with Christian civilization. Because to their way of thinking, the Holocaust and all the evils that had come about in Europe during the World Wars were attributable completely to Christianity. And therefore, they wanted no part of it, and they wanted to totally divest American culture of it. As turn on the TV, you can see they have largely succeeded. But they can't succeed against a orthodox application of God's law. And that's why our public institutions do all they can to make sure that the Bible isn't prevalent and promoted and taught in schools or allowed in the courtroom, or even some censorship now on social media when somebody has the audacity to say, thus saith the Lord. Because even most Christians would not say, if everybody agrees that something in the Bible is wrong, it's still right, because let God be true and all men liars. Very few people have that appreciation for God's authority and power. They think God has authority if you give it to him. No, God has authority because he has authority. And no matter what you do, you're really not going to ever succeed in nullifying God's law. Oh, you might disobey it, but then you'll receive the consequences called curses or judgment. And if you obey it, you receive the consequences of blessing and grace. So lest anybody think that God is worried, I suggest they go read Psalm 2 and discover just how unworried he is. Yes, and let's also be clear that if people reject God's law, if they reject the divine truth of Almighty God as given to us in Holy Scripture, 
Well, that is their standard of living, and that's where they're coming from. But as you pointed out, and as Scripture says, they will deal with the consequences. Now, of course, they may not care anything about that. They, they could say, well, that's, I, I, I'm not concerned about that one way or the other. But let's also realize that the earliest followers of Jesus, in addition to the older covenant church, uh, the Old Testament people of Israel, they found themselves in a culture very similar to where we are now, not identical. Uh, yes, there was rampant perversions of sexuality in the pagan world, in some cases more bizarre than what we have, but in some cases maybe not so bizarre compared to what we have. But it was the, the rise of the Christian faith, the rise of the, the acceptance and promotion of a biblical standard about how people ought to relate to each other in the area of sexuality, that was the biggest threat and the biggest change in the ancient pagan world. Several scholars have recently written on this topic. I believe I may have referenced one of these books in a much earlier discussion, a book called The Shame of Sin. The idea of maintaining a biblical standard on the issue of human sexuality is one of the great contributions that came from the promotion of the Christian faith and the widespread acceptance of it. But as we have been saying, if people reject it, it's not that God has somehow failed. It simply means that he is going to give them over, those people who, who don't want to abide by this standard, to that which they've chosen. The, the sad part about it is it's not necessary. That doesn't have to happen. People can cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness and for guidance and help, and he has promised that for all who sincerely seek him, uh, he will answer uh, their cry and, and give them his guidance as given in his word. And I believe that's why it's so important for those of us who understand what has come to be known as the theonomic position, and that is the full force of God's law for today, and that all people as individuals and families and churches and civil realms and associations and business and educational realms are all under the law of God. Yes, they're different spheres, but they're all under God's law. And in any area where it's not being actively taught, you have sometimes, and I'll give you an example, a very sad one that I heard recently, of how people who think they're being obedient because they have had promoted to them an antinomian world and life view get themselves into situations that, quite frankly, baffle them or injure them. So I heard of a case of a young woman who was traveling by herself on an airplane to come back to a family funeral. And she was relating to one of her relatives subsequent to this occurrence that while she was on the airplane, the man sitting next to her started physically assaulting her by rubbing her breasts and, and basically touching her inappropriately. And when asked, what did you do about it? the girl answered, nothing, because I wanted to witness to him. Oh, my. And then one relative said to her, well, honey, that's the price you pay for being pretty. Hmm. Wow. So how did we get there that this woman doesn't have an understanding of, A, not only should he not do that to her, but that she has a responsibility. So if she knew, for example the biblical case law of a woman being assaulted and that she does not cry out. And when I was talking with a group of women who were one of which was relating this story, I said, for a woman could be on a plane. You know what I would have done? I would have nice and loudly said, please stop touching my breast. Well, you know that everybody would have turned around at that point. The stewardess would have come. I said, you might even get upgraded to first class after that. And the man would be dealt with because you cried out as opposed to, I said, because, and then I was being funny, of course. I said, well, for goodness sake, if she really wanted to witness to him, she should have taken off her shirt. I mean, then he would have listened. Then she could have given him anything he wanted. That's how ridiculous the line of thinking is that we have to be seeker sensitive. We've got to figure out what is it that people want. Well, maybe a lot of young guys like to go to church because there are a lot of moral, upright Christian girls, and in too many cases they get taken advantage of because they figure, well, these girls, they're going to think that they can help convert me or, or that, that they're supposed to be kind to all new people who show up at the church. 
You see, if God's law isn't the standard, everybody is left crippled. And that's where I think people who embrace the worldview that we're talking about, hopefully people who are listening to this and might share it with other people, realize that the greatest protection that we have is the law of God. Because you see, the law of God is not a burden to those who are in Christ. It is a blessing. And we've got to recapture the view that I may not understand it, but God gave this law for my benefit, not for my detriment. And on that very good note, I think that we have well discussed this subject, and maybe this is a good point for us to recommend some resources, as we typically do at the conclusion of our podcast. Um, You referenced Volume 3, I believe it was, of um, the Institutes of Biblical Law earlier, but I would like to recommend two resources in particular. Dr. Rastuni wrote a book some years ago. One of his more recent books to be published is called To Be as God, A Study of Modern Thought Since the Marquis de Sade. Now, this book is not, in, is not directly about the subject of homosexuality, but it is about the subject of a person, in this case the Marquis de Sade, who completely and totally understood the ramifications of living a life totally divorced from any standard of biblical morality. Uh, He was one of the most disgusting, evil people who ever lived, and yet he is revered among the academic and intellectual types. Uh, And he wrote extensively, Desaad did, um, about his thinking. And so Dr. Rastuni wrote this book about him and others who followed him. So there is quite a bit in this book about how human sexuality becomes perverted and warped when it's divorced from a, a biblical standpoint. And, and by the way, that book is available from the Chalcedon Foundation at the, uh, the store um, link on the website. The other book is um, a, a classic that the late Dr. Greg Bonson wrote some years ago, published by Baker, called Homosexuality, A Biblical View. It is at once uh, an exhaustive book on the subject, although it's less than 150 pages. But it is also, I think, a book of uh, compassion and understanding. But it leaves no doubt about what the biblical view is. Do you have any that you'd like to recommend, Andrea? No, I think that about covers it. And in essence, the, quote, LGBTQ or whatever new initials get added to it is just a manifestation of what happens when the law of God is abandoned. So this week we're talking about that. We could bring up any other number of issues that reflect the fact that the church has ceased being the prophetic voice it's supposed to be and has become the accommodating voice. And the thing about accommodation is it doesn't get you more people. It just has other people leave your group. Yeah, and if you can't tell the difference between the voice of the culture from the voice of the church, especially if you're in a a culture that has become profoundly antinomian and unbiblical, then there's no reason to go to the church. There's no reason, reason whatsoever to listen to the church because you can just as soon watch a sitcom on TV and get the same message. Exactly. So for those who might be listening to this podcast for the first time, we have had a series of them prior. And if you go to the Chalcedon site and just put in Out of the Question podcast, you'll see the audio album that has all our previous discussions. If you would like to comment on anything that was said today or in previous ones or even suggest something that we might talk about in the future, the best way to get that information or that request to us is by writing to out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Andrea. And to all our listeners, we look forward to our next visit with you. Thanks for listening to out of the question for more information on this and other topics visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.